All right, please go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This morning we will be looking at verses 17 to 25, eight of my favorite verses in this whole letter. Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Amen. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. Throughout literature and throughout medieval history, The character of a wise fool is the man or the woman who appears to be foolish, but who actually has great wisdom. So the typical court jester in many of the stories that we have read or that we have even read about in our history books, the court jesters were men or women who played and spoke in front of great nobility. They were seemingly foolish people, but they were often actually very skilled and extremely insightful people. They not only entertained, but often spoke profound truth to those who would listen. Some court jesters were even soldiers in the army. Some were politicians in the government. Underneath the fool's cap, that cap with three points and the bells that jingled on the end, underneath the fool's cap was oftentimes a mind that was sharp and calculated. In Shakespeare, the wise fools are often people who were employed by royalty and nobility to entertain, but they were oftentimes smarter than those in those positions of authority, and they were often used by Shakespeare to mock them, to reveal truth of the, the truth of a situation to them, or to provide social commentary about them. We have wise fools today too, comedians and satire writers those who appear to say things that are trite or comical, but who are in actuality communicating pointed truths that we need to hear. The wise fool is a source of needed wisdom from an unexpected place. Today in 1 Corinthians 1, we encounter wisdom from unexpected places as well. 
Paul, as he writes to the Christians in the city of Corinth, Christians who would have greatly valued anything that seemed wise to their listening ears. They were people who would have strongly believed that the, that the, the more profound something sounded, the more valuable it must be, the more noble something sounded, the more eloquent it was spoken, the more worthy of a king's court it might be, the more true it must be. To these Christians... Paul says that the truth of the cross, which is what we celebrate together this morning, is like the wise fool. It appears to lack all dignity. It appears to be empty and foolish and worthless to those in the world. But in reality, it contains the greatest and the most profound truths that our souls need to hear. Paul says in verse 18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul is writing to Christians, Christians like you and me, who live in a very divided world, and he is pleading with them to be united together. But listen, he does not give them secular ideas or methodologies for how to be unified. He doesn't take them on a, on a team-building retreat together. He doesn't give them books on how to be more accepting and, and more tolerant of people who are different from them. He doesn't create an open space environment where there are no cubicles and everybody can see each other. No, the foundational truth that Paul deploys into their lives and into our lives in order to propel us towards unity is the truth of the cross. The word of the cross as he says and it is a word it is a message that appears to have zero wisdom behind it it seems to be a very foolish message it is the message of a king who did not sit on a throne a king who rather died on a roman instrument of torture and death and this message, which seems so far from being noble or wise to our ears, this message is actually the greatest demonstration of God's wisdom. And it is, in fact, the only power that we need to be united together. The main idea for our message this morning is this. The foolishness of God is our unifying power. The foolishness of God is our unifying power. Power, we, we have four points. Number one, God's discerning plan. That's verses 17 to 19. Point number two, humanity's failing wisdom. That's verses 20 to 21. Point number three, Christ's enabling call. That's verses 22 to 25. And then point number four, our unifying power. And that's from within the whole context. Let's begin with point number one, God's discerning plan. Do you know how in our world today, when, when things don't go as expected, we often try to spin those things in order, to make, in order to make them sound better than we first thought, right? So when a politician makes a mistake, he finds a way to actually make it sound like a good thing. When multiple movie producers and actors create three different Spider-Man universes, Disney comes in and tries to create one that makes it seem like all of that was intentional. When, when I take a wrong turn on a road trip, I quickly claim that I did it intentionally just to give everybody the scenic route. And while we're at it, let's get milkshakes. Look at my great leadership and fatherly care. We, we are all really good at spinning our mistakes into seemingly good things. So here's the question. Is God just a really good spin doctor? 
Was Jesus dying on the cross actually an unexpected catastrophe in God's plan? Was the cross a disaster? But now God wants to make the best out of a bad situation, and so he employs men like Paul to give it a positive spin. So when Paul says things like, the cross is the power of God in verse 18, is Paul just spinning a disaster to appear better than first thought? Well, friends, it's very important for us to see that the way that Paul speaks of the cross here is not just an attempt at wordspin. He's not just trying to make the best out of a bad situation. No, he's actually trying to show us that what seems bad is actually the culmination of God's greatest plan for this world and for his people. Look at verse 17. Paul says that Christ sent him to preach the gospel and that Christ sent him to preach not with eloquent, fancy words of wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So we see in that that there is an intended power within the cross. The the cross is what Paul needs to be preaching. Why? Because there is power in this. Not because of some act of word spin on Paul's part, but because this is the message that Jesus himself, that God himself intended to be preached to the world that he loves. And then look down at verse 19 with me. After saying that the word of the cross is the power of God, Paul says these incredibly important words, for it is written. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Paul uses this quotation from within the book of Isaiah, not because it is specifically talking about the cross, but because it gives one of many examples in God's word of how God always likes to work in surprising ways to this world. Paul cites this passage to show that God has always contradicted the wisdom of the world. Seeing the cross as the power of God is not just spin doctrine. The the cross was not just a bad situation made to look good, but rather it was God's good plan all along. As it is written, God intended from the very beginning of history to write a story that would truly befuddle the worldly wisdom that would truly destroy the wisdom of the wise and that would thwart the discernment of the discerning. Paul quotes Isaiah here, but church, there's another place in Isaiah where we see God's plan for the cross even more specifically spoken and prophesied about, and that is in Isaiah chapter 53, a chapter that was written centuries before Jesus ever came to earth, but that is still very, very much about Jesus. The passage that says that he was despised and rejected by man. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. A few verses later in that chapter, it says that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. This is God's will. This was God's discerning plan. It's not a new plan. It's it's a very old plan. It's not a pretty plan. It's an ugly plan. We would have written it differently. 
We would have chosen a savior or a king from whom men did not want to hide their faces because of his ugly appearance. We would have chosen a savior that was beautiful to look upon. But this was not God's plan. From before the beginning of time, God had the cross in view. Could he have chosen some other way than an ugly cross to be the, the, to the, to be the centerpiece of his plan? Yes, he could have. But did he? No. Why? Because God wisely wrote a plan that would require humility and faith on our part. A story that would leave the world scratching their heads in bewilderment, but that would allow those with the gift of humility and faith to wonder in amazement at what he had done. To wonder at the wisdom of God, which stands so starkly against the wisdom of this world. And that brings us to our second point. Point number two, humanity's failing Wisdom, look at verses 20 to 21. Paul says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Now these verses can be a little bit confusing when you first read them because Paul uses the words wisdom and foolish in rapid succession, but but in this text those words don't always mean what we think that they mean. They actually are opposite at times. Wisdom seems to us as Christians like a good thing, right? We should want wisdom. Solomon tells his son in the book of Proverbs that he should seek out wisdom like fine gold. Wisdom, according to God's word, most times is a very good thing, but not necessarily here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we know that because Paul distinguishes between two kinds of wisdom. Apparently, there is a bad kind of wisdom here. In verse 20, Paul says, where are the debaters of this age, the men who are wise and powerful of this age? world. In the next verse he says, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? So Paul's highlighting the wisdom of this world that is different and distinct from godly wisdom. And and not only does Paul highlight worldly wisdom, he highlights those who pride themselves on having great amounts of worldly wisdom. He says, where's the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Paul says, says, where are the men who in the eyes of the world are the epitome of wisdom? These men who, like the scribes and the debaters of the age, they would have been men who would have been highly honored, greatly esteemed in the city of Corinth. And so, as the Christians in Corinth read this for the first time, they would not have been like, huh, I wonder who Paul's speaking of there. No, they would have been able to look around and they would have seen the men who filled these roles. They would have been able to look out this church window and they would have seen in the distance government buildings that would have been filled with scribes, men writing the law, both religious and governmental law. They would have been able to hear out this window of the church, philosophers hotly debating their philosophies in the public square. They would have been able to hear these things and see these things all around. So Paul is not saying, hey, where are these men? Can you go find one of them for me? No, he's saying, where are they and their claimed wisdom before God's wisdom? Or where are these men and their claimed wisdom in comparison to God's wisdom? 
Paul is in fact saying that the the word of the cross, the gospel, has revealed something about reality in this God-created world that is distinctly different from the perspective of the world that we live in. He's saying that the word of the cross, the gospel, has literally undercut the wisdom of this world and made it like nothing, so much so that it almost can't even be found. See, worldly wisdom, the wisdom of this age, is dangerous. It's dangerous because so often it comes from a godless perspective. It is a humanistic wisdom. It is a man-centered wisdom. The wisdom of this world is about us and about how smart we can be. The, the, the wisdom of this world tells us that the stronger or the smarter we are in worldly things, the, the more money we have, the more power we have, the more letters after our name we have, the world tells us that these things are where position and power and happiness come from. And that's dangerous because that's wrong. And it's so wrong, it's so dangerous because worldly wisdom like that often just blinds us to our need for godly wisdom. If we stand in the strength of the power of worldly wisdom, well, then we will not even be able to see our need for Jesus. We're going to be blind to our need. We're never going to come to him and be saved by him because we're going to be so confident in ourselves and in our stuff. And so in such a powerfully insightful way, Paul says in verse 21 that it was actually the wisdom of God, good wisdom, that has made it impossible for the world to know God through their wisdom, through bad wisdom. Paul is saying that that all of their education, all of their study, all of their rhetoric, all of their eloquence, through it all, the world cannot find their way to God. They have not even found happiness in all of life. And Paul is saying that it was, it was God's wisdom, it was his goodness that led him to write a story that did not allow him to be found or to be known through those things. Why? Because the story that God has written is a story of his unfailing and self-sacrificing love. And his unfailing love looks nothing like the self-centered, self-serving, self-promoting wisdom of this world. And so he wisely wrote a story that requires us to look away from the wisdom of this world, to look away from ourselves in order to fully see and accept the wisdom and love of God. And so Paul says that it was the wisdom of God to say no to worldly wisdom. Humanity's wisdom will not find their way to me, God says. It is only through humble acknowledgement that God's ways are different from your ways. It's only through acknowledging that the word of the cross contradicts worldly understandings of power and position and glory. It's only through seeing the work of God's humility on the cross that we will be able to understand where true wisdom and ultimately where true happiness comes from. The word of the cross... It turns our ideas of what is wise and powerful upside down. It completely inverts everything. The the cross where God himself dies for humanity says that happiness is not found where the world finds happiness. The cross says that happiness is not found in your education. The cross says that happiness is not found in your career title. The cross says that happiness is not found in a new car or a new home. The cross says that happiness is not found in an Instagram-worthy life. The cross says that happiness is not found in being respected or praised by others or in winning that hard argument. 
The cross says that happiness is not found in winning all over life. No, happiness, the cross says, comes from looking at a bloody and gory cross and realizing that true joy comes to, happens when we come to the end of ourselves and accept and receive what someone else has done for us. Church, look at what it says in verse 21. It says that it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, to save those who believe. Paul says that it, it makes God smile big when he, see, he sees us viewing the world as empty and as folly. God smiles big when we realize that our hope and our joy is not found in position or power or possession. God smiles big when we realize that everything in this world is nothing compared to Jesus. Now why? Why is Paul saying all of this? What is the point of all of this? Does this mean that all other worldly wisdom is bad? Should we not pursue education? Should we not become skilled experts in our field? Is it bad to have ambition to climb the corporate ladder at work? Should we not want to have letters after our name? Should we not want a nicer house or a newer car? Is everything in the world bad? No, that's not what Paul is saying. See, the key to understanding what he is saying is found in verse 21 when he says that the world did not know God through wisdom. Paul is seeking to keep us from thinking that all of these pursuits in life are what can ultimately save us. We don't know God through success and accolade. No, we know God when we remember that he sent his only son, Jesus, into this world without any worldly sense of success and accolades and without any earthly possessions. He sent his son to become nothing for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, think about, think about the effect that this can have on our lives. Now, the primary application here is towards unity within the church, and we're going to speak about that in a moment. But think with me about the comfort that there is in this for God's people as we live in a secular society. The world is shouting all the time that we need that, and we need that, and we need that, and we can't be happy until we have those things. We need to succeed according to worldly standards. And if you don't, succeed in the way that the world says is important, well, then you are a failure at life. But Christian, listen. If you know Jesus and his work on the cross, you already know success. If you know Jesus and the work that he did on the cross, you already know victory. If you know Jesus and the work that he did on the cross, you already have power and you already possess wisdom. It may not look like how the world defines those things, but it's still true of who you are. If you know Jesus, you have everything that you need. The, the, those who are Christians don't need to fight for, for titles and for the positions like the world fights for those things. We can pursue education. We can still work towards success. We can still labor for greater position in the workplace. Those things are not evil in themselves, but we don't need to pursue them as our, as our only hope. And listen, this is huge. When we do not have those things, we do not need to lose hope. When we don't get that promotion, when we don't get accepted into that internship, when someone buys the house that we have been dreaming about, when we don't get to be a part of that group of friends like we would want to be. 
We don't despair because we do not know God through those things. No, we know God through the word of the cross. The word of the cross is absolutely central to all that we are. It changes our outlook on everything in this life. It's everything, church. Let's never leave it behind. That brings us to our third point. Point number three, Christ's enabling call. It could very well be asked, who of us in this room has discernment, wisdom enough to see the wisdom of the cross as a good thing? The cross is so contrary to natural wisdom. If, as Paul says in verse 22, that the message of the cross, the message of of Christ crucified is a stumbling block to those with natural wisdom, then how will anyone, how will any of us see the beauty and the power of the cross? On our own, how can any of us see a crucified Messiah and believe that it is a good thing and not a bad thing? Think about the message of the gospel and what it is that Paul is saying is of first importance. Paul is coming to us and saying, hey, I'd like to introduce you to a man. His name's Jesus. He was born to really poor parents. He was actually born in a stable. He grew up in general obscurity until later in life when he he gained some popularity. But most of his life, he was just a carpenter. And then he got wrongly accused, but he he was crucified on a Roman cross between two criminals. And then he was buried in a grave. Think about hearing that for the first time. When Paul comes and says, this is the greatest news that the world has ever heard, we would say, no, it's not. No, we don't get it. That doesn't make sense to us. On our own, none of us would value what Paul is saying. None of us would see this as beautiful. It makes no sense to our natural ears. Our hearts don't naturally celebrate somebody dying on a cross. It's not what we do. We actually feel sorry for them and we we pity them. We don't get excited about it. We certainly don't devote our lives to them. None of us will see the wisdom of the cross on our own. This is very true. But praise God for verses 22 to 25. Paul says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Listen. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul says in verse 22 that we all have a tendency to value what we can see and feel and hear. All of humanity, both Jews and Greeks, both the religious and the unreligious, both the rich and the poor, we all, we all demand powerful signs. We all long for eloquent wisdom. We all have a tendency to value what we can feel and touch and and hear. So the cross will never make sense to us on our own. But church, the cross is not supposed to make sense to us. It is supposed to befuddle us. It is supposed to make us scratch our head. God intentionally wrote the story this way where the symbol of our salvation is, as it says in verse 23, a stumbling block. We fall over it because it doesn't make any sense to us. Paul says in chapter 2, verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of God for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The natural person, it's impossible for us to value his wisdom on our own. Apart from God's grace, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. But praise God 
for these words, but for those who are called. The word of the cross is folly to to all of humanity except to those who are called by God. Except to those, as we will see in chapter 2, who have the spirit of God enabling them to, to see and to understand the work that he has done. Our natural selves, apart from God's grace, apart from his calling, we will laugh at the cross. It will be like a court jester. It will make no sense. But when our God sovereignly, lovingly, intentionally comes to us and by the power of his Holy Spirit breathes upon us and enables us to peer into the depths of God's great wisdom, then we begin to see the beauty and the wisdom of the cross. Then we see how there was no other way for God to redeem us than to die in our place. The only way that we understand the beauty of the gospel is when God's spirit sovereignly elects, sovereignly regenerates, sovereignly calls, sovereignly enables us to see the beauty of what he has done and then causes us to put our trust fully in him. This is Christ's enabling power. Church, this is, I don't know how familiar you are with terms, but this is at the very center of our reformed faith. And this is what should bring so much joy to our hearts and to our souls. Think about this with me. The wisdom of the world is perishing, Paul says. It might feel good for a little while, but the wisdom of this world will ultimately perish. And think about it. Apart from God's electing grace, God's word says that you and I would be stuck in that worldly wisdom. But he has called us. He's spoken our name, not because of anything in us, not because he saw us as particularly intelligent or skilled in some area. No, he called us only because of his good pleasure and because of his great mercy and grace. And when he calls us, it means that he's given us the ability to see his wisdom as beautiful. Think about how glorious this is. The wisdom of the cross is hidden from the world. We are blinded by our sin, by our own sense of what is wise. We cannot be saved according to our own strength or wisdom. But God in his great love does not want all to perish. And so he called some by name. Christian, he spoke your name. He spoke your name. He said, come to me and see my love for you on the cross. See it as good and not as bad. Believe in my goodness and be adopted into my family. (laughs) This is what he's done. Friends, I I did not wake up one morning and suddenly say, oh, you know, that gory cross, that's actually a beautiful thing. You know, in in my pride, in my self-sufficiency, I felt no need for that cross. And I was, I was happy to keep serving myself. Even when I served others, I was ultimately just serving myself. I did not wake up and just suddenly in my own strength say, you know what, I think I'm going to try that out. No, God is the one who has done this work. God is the one who broke into my heart. God is the one who saved me from myself when I could not save myself. He didn't let your pride and your selfishness stop him from this work. He broke through all of that worldly wisdom. He called you by name. He regenerated your heart and he gave you the ability to believe. Christian, be amazed by this with me today. 
Amen? Let's sing because of this today. Let's dance because of this today. There's nothing that can give you greater joy in this life than knowing that the God of the universe spared you from yourself and from the wisdom of this world. This week I was with some friends and we're just getting to know each other and we were talking about Reformed theology. We were talking about God's electing grace and they've recently discovered it and are coming alive to it. And I just said to them, I said, what has this done for your soul? How has it changed your relationship with Jesus? And the one, the brother that I said to it specifically was there thinking about it, pausing about it. Before he could even answer, his wife just, just says, he's happier now. He's happier. He smiles more now. She said, I'll never forget when I, when I started seeing him smile more throughout life because of the work that God had done, because of how God had shown him that his salvation was not because of what he had done, but because of his grace and his goodness. This is supposed to make us incredibly happy Christians. And this should unite us together. And that brings us to our fourth and to our final point. Point number four, our unifying power. We can't forget the context that these verses are written in. Paul is making an apologetic for the wisdom of God as seen through the word of the cross. But the point, the, the primary application that Paul is pushing us towards is that of unity within the church. There are divisions within the church. And, and Paul is appealing by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of us agree and that there be no divisions among us. Church, I don't think that there is a better argument for unity than what Paul has spoken to us this morning. Division happens when we either think of ourselves too highly or when we value something other than the cross too strongly. Let me say that again. Division happens when we either think of ourselves too highly or when we value something other than the cross too strongly. And Paul has dealt a death blow to both of those sources of division in this text. Division happens when we value something other than the cross too strongly. Listen, friend, if you think that you have particular wisdom in life, if you think that your perspective is always accurate, if you think that your political position or your theological perspective is God's greatest gift to the church and to those around you, you will not be united to those who differ from you for very long because you are valuing something more than the word of the cross. Division happens when we value anything more than the message of the cross, even when we value good things more than the cross. And so do you love a certain style of worship music? If you love it more than the cross, it will divide. Do you love politics? Do you love your nation? If you love it more than the cross, it will divide. Do you love things within the church that you feel particularly burdened for, that you want to see the church grow in? Do you care a lot about evangelism? Do you, do you care a lot about youth ministry? Do you care a lot about healthy marriages? Do you care a lot about ethnic harmony within the church? These are all good things that may flow from the word of the cross, but we must, must not make them center or we must not value them more than the word of the cross. Division happens when we value something other than the cross too strongly. Church, we don't need to shy away from those conversations. 
We don't need to act as if those issues are not real or not important at all. We can speak to them. We should speak to them, but we should speak to them in a way that that unites rather than divides the body. We should speak to them in a way that flows from the cross. I love to think about the church as a wheel. And at the very center of that wheel is a hub. And then there are spokes that come out from the wheel. The hub of the wheel is the gospel. And then there are many, many different spokes that flow from the gospel. And you can name them all day long. But we must never take one of those spokes and crumple it up and try to make it the hub of the wheel. Because as soon as we do, the whole wheel collapses. The gospel must remain center. And then the gospel must give us strength and boldness to talk at length about the areas of division. To get, to get detailed with the issues within the church. There are many spokes that need to be addressed, but it is the gospel that enables us to do, uh, have those conversations in a way that unites rather than divides. Divisions happens when we value anything more than the gospel too strongly. Division also happens when we think of ourselves too highly. I don't know about you, but I tend to think of myself as God's greatest gift to the church. My perspective, my wisdom, my skills, my calling, how blessed you all are. (laughs) But the wisdom of the cross says that unity happens in the church when we look away from ourselves and to Jesus. The people in the church at Corinth were divided because they were thinking of themselves and those that they followed too highly. They were focused on men rather than on Christ. But this text reminds us that we are only in the church together because we were all called by God's grace. We only have the positions that we have. We only get to serve in the ways that we serve. We only have the relationships that we have because of God's electing grace upon us. And it was not because of anything in us. It's, it's foolish for the church to be divided between those who follow Paul and those who follow Apollos and those who follow Peter. It's foolish because all of those men are only sinners saved by grace. Paul the Apostle is going to go on in this letter to speak of himself in seemingly disparaging ways. Paul, are you depressed? Paul, do you need some encouragement? Paul, what's going on with your self-perspective? He says in chapter 4 that he is nothing but a servant of Christ, the scum of the world. Paul is humbly acknowledging his own weakness because he knows that all that he is is by God's grace and not his own wisdom or strength or power. Paul could have come in. He's the Apostle Paul. He could have come in shouting and condemning. He could have come in turning over tables and getting their attention with his own strength and bravado and eloquence. But he speaks to them in a loving and unifying way. Why? Because he's not following the wisdom of the world, but the wisdom of the cross. And the word of the cross says that we are all bondservants of Christ Jesus, and therefore we can be united around Christ Jesus together, even when people have wronged us. Even when we are hurt by people's wrong perspectives of us. I love how in verse 24 it says, But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks. That's a miraculous statement. Because according to worldly wisdom, Jews and Greeks are not supposed to get along. Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles, they hate each other. But here, Paul paints a picture of them together being called by God into the same local church. And he paints a picture of unity being truly possible. Because they're all recipients of the same grace. There is no 
worldly division that cannot be unified by the gracious calling of God in the gospel. There is no conflict in your life that can't be healed by his grace. This is our unifying power. Christian, you don't need to defend yourself every time you are wronged. You can forbear with your brother or sister in the church. Christian, you don't need to convince that person of what you believe to be true. Because if they, like you, see the wisdom of the cross, if they love Jesus, though their doctrine may not be perfect, though their life may not be perfectly holy, though their convictions may differ in certain ways than yours, you can still love them because they're at the same foot of the cross with you. The foolishness of God is our unifying power. May we stand at the foot of this cross together for years to come, united by God's grace. Let's pray.